go into a restaurant, you sit down, the waiter or waitress comes over and, and either tells you to take out your phone and scan the little QR code or he hands you a menu. And I know this is going to sound both a little bit uh, old and maybe a little bit uh, uh, particular, but I like a menu. I'm just that kind of guy. I want a paper menu in my hand. And that I know I recognize that makes me old, but you get a menu. And before you are just, uh, well, if you ever go to the Cheesecake Factory, it's like 6,000 choices. Have you noticed their menu is like 30 pages long? It is chapters. It's, it's that long. And you, and you have these choices and you have to choose between price and quantity and food choice. So I know particularly what restaurants I'm in, uh, hopefully, what, what is they're better at doing, okay? I go into an Italian restaurant, I probably want Italian food, not chicken fingers, all right? That's just probably what I'm looking for. So, so it's price, and I'm also, I don't want to spend $75 for dinner, so I'm trying to think this through. How much it, does this cost? Because what I'm looking for is value. And so this is all the process of ordering, and you get through with it, and then immediately you go to your Yelp review, right, to decide, did I make a good choice or not? Well, there is kind of a Christian menu, as it were. You start, you get into the restaurant of God, just following the metaphor here. It's, it's a little bit of a stretch, but I'm tired, and it was a long day. So the, you start off with the gospel water, right? And, and it's water of life, so I thought that was good. And then, and then the, the beginning, uh, some of you are giving me faces. I thought that was good. It's the water of life. It's the gospel. And then you, the, they bring the bread to your table. The, that's, again, the gospel, but I, I needed something after the gospel. So I made that kind of the beginning of church life because you're starting to eat the food. And then, and then the entree is your changed life. That's when everything changes. You go from hungry to full, typically. And then the dessert, if you have room, is the blessings of a changed life. And I think, and now that I'm going to leave that metaphor because it's terrible, uh, what I think Christians want is a changed life. I mean, at the end of the day, we want something that's practical. The theological is great. You know, the people in their ivory towers, the scholars, the academics, let them play around with all the different theologies. But at the end of the day, I want something real that I can hold on to, tangible, that will change life that's reality and i think if we took the opponents of paul the judaizers in the book of galatians in the best possible light let's just because we're nice just take them in the best possible light okay these people want the same thing they want a changed life but their approach to a changed life and Paul's approach to a change is really different. And it's so different. It's as if we're ordering off different menus. Now that I think about it, I should have started off with that Chinese place that has the menu for the Chinese and the menu for the Americans, right? Because that's really what's happening. The Judaizers want to change life, but they're ordering off the menu of the law. See, I'm back to this metaphor. It, it really is a good metaphor. The... The Christians say, I want to change life, but I'm ordering off of the menu of the gospel of grace. And the Judaizers are looking at the Christians in Galatia, in southern Turkey, and they're saying, you will not achieve a changed life if you continue following the teaching of Paul. And what Paul is doing in Galatians, if you haven't picked this up until now, is he, this is a one, ar, one long argument over a singular point. 
is that actually, if you try to become a law keeper, you will not experience a change in life. Even if it seems like some aspects of your life have changed, trying to keep rules doesn't work. And, and ultimately, when I look at a person, if I'm going to say the Judaizers are wanting a changed life, that's what I want to. I'm going to argue with Paul that the real place to find a changed life is through the control of the Holy Spirit. And so this brings me to my first point, being spirit-controlled. Now think about those words, being spirit-controlled results in ethical Christian living. You know what Paul says here? We should all be do-gooders. We should all be goody-goodies. And I know that sounds horrible because we've been kind of in our culture to look down on people. Do-gooders is, is almost an insult. But unfortunately, the wording is right here in our text. If you look at verse 10, he says, as we have opportunity, let us do what? Let us do good to everyone. So God leads Christians to be a blessing to other people. Spirit-filled people, and this is the reason why, are loving people. Friends, when you're not loving, the Spirit of God is not controlling you. Only when he's controlling you can you find the fruit of the Spirit, one of which, the first of which is love, actually playing itself out. And so when you realize this, and you go back to chapter 5 uh, in, the, in the text, look over in verse 6, he says, he says, for neither Christ, uh, for, for in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision avails anything, nor uncircumcision. What really works? Faith, which works by love. Do you see that? It's all about love. And then you kind of skip over to verse 13. So brothers, you've been called to, liber li to liberty, but don't use your liberty as an occasion to the flesh, but rather by love serve each other. And then look at verse 14. He says, for all the law can be summarized in this statement. You should love your neighbor as you love yourself. So if you understand what Paul is saying here is this, is that if you keep the law, if that's your focus, you may be told to love people, but you're going to struggle to do that. You're going to run into people who aren't very loving themselves, who aren't kind, who aren't nice, who aren't good. Even in church, you're going to run into those people. All right? I mean, uh, we've all had occasion to have a moment where either we ourselves were unkind to another church member or a church member was unkind to us. Do we all agree we've had those occasions? We've all had those occasions. And when we are not being controlled by the Spirit, we're in danger of those moments. But he's saying basically here, but... If you really are loving people, then you won't have that problem. Because even if somebody insults me, even in the worst sort of way, if you go back to 1 Corinthians 13, you're going to find that love just puts the best possible construction on that. Love just says, well, you know, that's not how she normally is. That's not, that's not who he normally is. <laughs> See, that's what love does. And so you realize that those who are filled with the Spirit will naturally do good to other people. If you go back through those fruits of the Spirit, you see they'll seek peace in conflict or they'll exhibit patience 
in difficulty, and they'll be gentle in their interactions with others, and they'll be even humble to say, I'll let you offend me over and over and over again. It's okay. I'll take that because I love you in the Lord. And I want you to know, if you've ever said to yourself, I've kind, I'm reaching a point where I can't take her anymore or I can't take him any longer, then I want you to know you are not being controlled by the Spirit because the Spirit lets you forgive and forbear over and over and over again. So what you find then here is this is how our lives should be characterized. He says, be aware, be on the lookout for opportunities to do good. And Paul is not saying I have to create those opportunities. These opportunities create themselves in the course of life. The harvest of life comes when it comes. But our goal should be to do good when those opportunities present themselves. And he says, for everybody. I mean, not just believers. He says, for all men, do good to everyone. This really is kind of an Old Testament ethic, by the way, playing itself out. The Jews were commanded to do these things. They didn't do them. But when you get to the New Testament and Jesus calls the Pharisees to account through stories like the Good Samaritan, right? Well, then who's my neighbor? Well, I've limited it down that, you know, my neighbor is only people who I really like and as long as I really like them. But if I don't like them anymore, then he's not my neighbor any longer. And Jesus really points out that's not how you're supposed to be living. So what he's saying is that our goodness should be to all men and, and, and especially to other believers. Your closest friends should be the relationships you have in church. And I would say even this, your chief areas of service should be other people in church. And I'm not saying you can't have friends outside of church. You ought to pursue that for evangelistic purposes. But I'm saying this is, this is really where it ought to be. And maybe, and maybe you would expand that further to say, okay, even believers who are in other churches, I'm okay with that too. But living this way, my, my friends, comes from walking in the Spirit. And you see here now uh, two opportunities, beginning in verse 1, to do good. This is really, I would say, two case studies on what he's presented in chapter 5 on what it's like to walk in the Spirit. And these two case studies begin with, first, what do I do with people who are spiritually struggling? Here's something the law can't do. Law keeping, when it confronts someone who's struggling spiritually, can only say, well, brother, you, you blew it. You know, here was the law. I mean, law keeping makes you the policeman with the guy running the red light. And I'm sorry, you ran the red light. This is what the law says. I write you a ticket. That's what law keepers do. Law keeping doesn't have a solution for people's flaws and sins. And this results when a person is captivated by legalism or law keeping. They're in the constant lookout at the, at the failings of others. They're watching for other believers in the church to run the red lights of life. That's not good. They're always comparing themselves to each other or comparing their children to each other. That's not good. But what the Spirit does here is he provides help for those who are spiritually hurting because here's what he's saying in the text. These people have been broken, broken by their sin. In fact, you notice what he says here. They're overtaken in a fault and they need to be restored. And the word restored there has the idea of mending a broken bone or, or repairing a broken fishing net. Just like some of you who go way back to the beginning of our church, our very first church, uh, it, was, well, it was a Memorial Day picnic back then. It was our very first one. 
I've got some great pictures uh, of, of my children and some others from back in that first one. But I'll never forget, I was dead tired and I was walking back to where the cars were and Jack Jefferson pulled up and he said, Matt, you got to get in the car. I said, what? He says, jump in the truck. They just said, go get Matt. And when I came back with Jack, here's what I saw. I saw my wife holding Melanie. She was just, I don't know, two years old or something, two and a half. Holding Melanie. She's crying. Melanie's crying. Every All the ladies at the time who were in our church are all surrounding them. They're all crying. And I thought, she's dead. That's it. She died. I don't know how, but that's it's the end. We lost her, you know. What I found out actually was she climbed up on the gym over the jungle, the jungle gym, the bar, the monkey bars. Do they still call them that? The little metal. Yeah. And she climbed up and she fell and she apparently got up and said, mommy, I broke my arm. And, and Becky said to her, oh, of course you did, sweetie. And then she held her arm up and it was going a direction it's not supposed to go. And then, it's, oh, you broke your arm. So I drove like 900 miles an hour to the wrong hospital because I didn't know that Rex was right around the corner. So I drove way out of the way to go to Western Wake. Anyway, you have to set the bone. When a person is hurting, you know what they don't need? Here's what they don't need. Oh, man, you broke that, didn't you? That looks bad. I, I'll never forget when I was a little boy, I was riding my bike at Bob Jones. I was on the campus. We lived right near the school, and I was riding my bike. It was summertime, and I'm riding my bike, and this lady who was on staff was, um, was walking down a sidewalk, and I wrecked. Actually, uh, I, my brother, I guess, had been playing around with my tires and the front wheel started coming off the frame and I wrecked real bad and I was underneath the bicycle. Underneath the bicycle. My arms were like through the spokes, if you can imagine, like the head through the middle portion. I'm, and I'm bleeding. I had shorts on and a t-shirt. So you just scrape up on a sidewalk. You know, you've seen, you either did this as a kid or you, you've seen people do this. And I'm, and I'm sitting there and she came over and she said, did you wreck? And, and I was too young and too much in pain to say, you think, you know. But this is what happens. A law keeper can only look at a person who's hurting and say, you wrecked. There's really no answer. And this is why I'm afraid in fundamental churches like ours, we are known for, here's the expression, shooting our wounded. This person's not going to make the journey out west, you know, that's it. And that's what ends up happening. And what the spirit-filled Christian does is he comes alongside the person to help him grow in his walk with the Lord. So he approaches that person with meekness, recognizing while he's approaching that individual, I'm a sinner too. I could commit this very same sin too. And this is how you actually perform the love that Christ demands. So instead of adding to the people's burdens, remember what Jesus said, woe to you, you add to the weights of these people, you make it strong, heavier on their backs. Instead of doing that by adding more law, I'm actually lifting the weight off. In fact, this is what the word burden here means. It means a weight that is impossible for me to carry alone. And that's important because it makes this life bearable. The only way we get through it is if we help one another, folks. We have to help each other. 
And he says that because there's something else going on. And he just has a little side comment where he says, okay, because everybody does have their own pack. He says you have your own burden, verses 4 and 5, but that word burden's different. It's not the big burden I can't carry by myself. It's a little tiny pack that you just kind of throw over your shoulder. And he's talking here about the fact that everyone will stand in judgment before God, and, and, and we will be judged. And this is apparently the very thing Paul is saying the law keepers want, but they want to be judged by the law. But who is the judge? Not the law, but the law giver. So he's saying here, how do we treat people who are hurting? We come and helped lift their load. There's a second idea here. And it's a really short one. It's in verse 6. And it just seems, again, like it's just thrown in there. And if you read commentaries, sometimes the commentators are confused. And they say, I have no idea why this verse is here. There are people who argue it doesn't belong here. There are some who say it's, uh, it's uh, uh, other people have added it later to this passage. Um, they, they go through huge, huge verbal machinations to try to come up with the reason why it's here. I actually think it's here because, to me, it kind of makes sense. In this, if the first one is an example of what spirit-filled living looks like, this also works out because he says to do good, not just to people who are hurting, but to those who teach the word. And, and this seems out of context, but what I think he's saying, if you go back to verse 1 when he says, all of you who are spiritual, you help mend the nets of the people who are broken. Do you see that in verse 1? Go back to verse 1. Brother, if brethren, if a brother be overtaken in a fault, ye who are spiritual. And I think what what if the we who are spiritual is primarily referring to the pastor teacher in the church, those are the people in churches who do most of the mending. Then actually it fits pretty well because he's saying, okay, those who are teaching the word, those who are helping mend the nets and set, setting the broken bones, now we should help provide for the material needs. Now, I, there's not really more application than that. It's, it's a one verse. It's kind of a one-off statement. But it actually fits in pretty well for me because if, if you're following Paul's train of thought, he's saying, okay, I'm supposed to walk in the Spirit so I won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. This is kind of what it looks like. It looks like love to a person who's hurting. But for the people who've been hurting, who've been helped, it looks like love to those who help them. And while we almost never talk about money, this is one of those weird passages where actually Paul is talking about money. And, and you need to understand something about Paul. He never, ever demanded money for himself in the churches he was serving in. He worked as a tent maker. But he always demanded money from the churches he had been in. He, he goes back to those other churches that he had been in and says, you need to be supporting pastors, me as an example. He gets all over the Corinthians because while the people of uh, Thessalonica who were poor and people uh, from Philippi who were poor would support him financially in his work, the Corinthians who were rich would not. And Paul says, while I was with you, I didn't demand anything. But now that I'm away from you, you should be giving too. Now, how do we do that? All of that occurs as we walk in the Spirit. And so this is kind of the ethos that's really controlling this whole passage, that God-honoring ethics come from spirit-controlled living. So he says here in the last little portion of this section, he says, okay, plant spiritual seeds, and you'll, and you'll harvest a spiritual harvest. If you plant flesh seeds, 
you'll harvest flesh, corruption. And God isn't fooled. So here you have all these people, the Judaizers, who because of their law keeping look godly, but they're not. They're not godly, but they look it. He says, you know what? God isn't fooled by you at all. You may look to be godly, but God knows you've been sowing to your flesh. So you're going to reap corruption. There are some eschatological aspects. The harvest is sometimes in Paul's text used for the end of life. But I do think there's a now aspect too, which is why he says, don't give up on doing good. Just keep at it. Keep doing good. You may be tired of planting. I mean, farming's hard work. But don't give up doing good. I think some applications fit in here. Everything uh, a law keeper wants comes not from keeping the law, but from walking in the spirit. If you give up a rules-based life for a spirit-guided life, and you can do that by Bible reading, Bible memorization, prayer, church attendance, interacting with other believers, singing hymns, sharing your faith, joining in church life. You can, you can be spirit-guided as you yield to him, you're dependent upon him, as you're obedient to him. It leads me saying, okay, that's what I can do. Here's a couple of thoughts. First of all, a lot of Christians have, in the past particularly, but even today, thought they can help themselves or their children or their families by detaching themselves from other people. And Paul's actually saying it should be the other way around. We should use love like a glue to glue ourselves to each other. Remember, we were talking about sanctification before the sermon began, just as an aside, but you understand something, that part of sanctification, a big part of it, is church life. And when people detether themselves from church life. Do you know the image I get? Somebody did this, this, well, I want to call it a meme, but it's not a meme. What is it when you have the little video on the internet? You know, I'm now showing my ignorance here. But they got the little video, goes like four seconds long, and then it repeats and repeats and repeats. Something like that, yes. You know you know what it is. Now, we don't even need to know it now. We know what it is. Okay, you understand what I'm saying. And, it's, and somebody put on their... Um, when a person says, I don't need the church, and it's an image of a herd of zebras off in the distance and one zebra being chased by a lion. <laughs> and I just thought, that's just great. I just play it over and over again, you know, the lion catching the zebra from behind. This is what happens when a guy says, I don't need the church. And so what happens to me is when a person, it seems to be godly within a church, but is detethered or detached from the church, and he's not glued by love to the church, then I start in my mind to wonder, is this person really godly? Or is he actually living his life based on rules? Do you see what I'm saying? There's a second thing here, and I'm, and I'm going to say this, and I know this is, I run the risk of, of stepping off the edge of what I think is biblical into not biblical, okay? But I think this is true. I think Standards are a good thing. They're not wrong, but they need to be constantly reevaluated in light of culture and scripture. So you have a standard like a hundred years ago, right? Where people said, if you listen to saxophone music, you're sinning. Bob Jones Sr. used to call it hell horns. That was the saxophone. They were hell horns. Well, 
I can't, I, I don't want to go into all the culture reasons why he said that. When I was growing up, roller skating was rock and roll on wheels. That was what one of the pastors in the churches I was at called roller skating. And don't get me started on what Pete said about people who owned a Mercedes Benz. Sorry, Humps. <laughs> Actually, Sporta drives it. It's just terrible, terrible. And, and maybe at the time it's said, and, and I think probably 100 years from now, people will be saying things we said, you know, or maybe even 30 years from now. Those, those things need to be constantly reevaluated in light of culture and scripture because, because as culture changes, scripture doesn't change, but as culture changes and as we grow in our walk with the Lord, we begin to realize that maybe this makes sense or maybe it doesn't make sense. And so I'm constantly reevaluating. But if I don't reevaluate, if I just say, okay, I'm going to put it in a box and that's it. And forever, this is what we did when I was a kid. And bless God, that's how we're going to do it for the rest of my life. Then I'm going to say, if it's not biblical and it's a standard, you've come to this understanding through scripture and through prayer and all this, and you've come to this understanding, but it wasn't how it was, but it is kind of how it is now. And you say, no, I don't like that. It goes against what I believe. Then maybe you need to reevaluate your weight, your beliefs in light of scripture again. And I think that's actually a healthy thing. Because ultimately, walking in the Spirit is easier and more productive. Now, I'm supposed to close in two minutes, and I'm, I'm at transition statement. So I'm just going to keep going. Do you, can, I do, can I just finish Galatians? Let's just finish it, okay? So how is it that Christians can be do-gooders like this? How do, how do I actually become a do-gooder like this? And what is it that the Spirit gives me in order for me to achieve the high standards of goodness? Because understand... Right back to the menu thing, right? We both want to change. The, pe the law keepers want to change. The, the spirit control people want to change. But we're reading off different menus. And I'm saying that what I'm reading, the menu of the gospel of grace, does result in change as I'm walking in the spirit. Because our satisfaction in life comes from Christ, not myself, not ourselves. It's all about Jesus. And there's so much here in these last few verses, I'm just ashamed we're going to brush through them. But those, <laughs> excuse me, those who are satisfied in themselves fall short. He says, you see, with a large letter I've written in my own hand, as many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised, only lest they should suffer persecution for the cause of Christ. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire you to have you circumcised that they may glory in your flesh. So the Judaizers were simply trying to put these Galatian believers on display. They wanted to show them off like you show off a prize. Like you go into somebody's house and he has uh, the, you know, the antlers, the head of the deer on the wall. You know, I shot that. That's my prize. That's my game. This is kind of what they want to do. They hope the Galatian believers would become circumcised as they were. They were Gentiles. They wanted to become Jews so they could boast about the flesh. I won't go into circumcision, but you understand what I'm saying. The flesh of other people. One translation actually says it's about making a good impression outwardly. This is the kind of church, by the way, that the, or the pastor who, ha, uh, who brags about his church stats. We had this many people baptized. We had this many people do this and that and the other. And it's all about these church statistics, which, by the way, never mentions the negative. I, I would always laugh. A church would stay the same size. They were always growing, but, but they were always the same size. 
So you would every month I would get the, the, all the newsletters from all the churches, and they'd all added 40 new members, you know, or something. But the church was the same size. You know what they're telling you, but not telling you? 40 other people walked out the door and said, we want nothing to do with you guys anymore. That kind of thinking is the wrong kind of thinking. And this makes the Christian life all about the physical or the outward. Furthermore, it allowed these people to avoid the scandal of the cross. Remember, the Gentiles didn't like the cross, 1 Corinthians 1. It was a scandal to them. And the Jews didn't like the cross. It was a stumbling block to them. So you remember when Paul and Barnabas end up in Lystra and Derby and Iconium, remember they go down there and everybody says, oh, you're like gods. It's incredible. The gods have come down to earth. And then uh, Paul and Barnabas, no, 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 we're not gods. And then the Jews show up and convince these Gentiles, if they're not gods, then clearly we should stone them to death. And so they try to stone Paul and almost kill him. In fact, it seems like he dies and rises from the dead. It's almost this, the idea there, because it says they dragged him out of the city as if he were dead. But Paul stood up in the midst of them and they went back into the city. And so if you think about this, what's actually going on here is, is he's saying, okay, all right, if I got circumcised, that, then I would no longer have the scandal of the cross. But friends, if you don't have the scandal of the cross, are you even a Christian? And that's a big problem. The reality is law keepers don't keep the law. They don't end up keeping the law. No one can keep the law. So even while they're trying to put a person on display and say, look, this is my law keeper. I, I, I converted him to Christianity or from Christianity to a Judaistic version of Christianity. It wasn't really anything of value. Because at the end of the day, he's still stuck. He didn't change. He can't keep the law. He didn't change. It means to do no spiritual good. The only glory is flesh glory. That's all the glory this person has, flesh glory. That's when you're satisfied in yourself. If, if you look and evaluate your Christian life based on all the things that you're doing, then there's something radically wrong with you. That, that's just it, folks. But if you are looking and evaluating Christian life of what Jesus is doing through you and in you, then you have it right. The only answer can only be praise the Lord. It can't ever be. And, and some of the readers, the writers that I was reading, not the readers, the writers, I was the reader, reading about this passage of scripture, they were noticing, uh, you know, a lot of more pastoral. And they were commenting how these pastors things get together. And it's sad because you do hear this sometimes. Well, I did this, and I did this, and I did this, and praise the Lord, and I did this, and I did this, and praise the Lord, but it is kind of an afterthought. And I'm going to tell you, maybe that's a little critical, but I have heard that. We have to be very careful to recognize that while we're training up our children in the way of the Lord, that the good that's being done in them is from God. It's not really from me. I'm obeying God by training them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, Ephesians 6, but God's the one doing the work. And so praise be to God when things go well. And I would say, I, I heard a man say this once, everything you see, uh, he was talking about another building, another, another institution, but anything you see here, God did. Anything bad you see here, uh, I did. I think that's how we should look at, at our church. Whatever good is here isn't me at all. Most of you know that anyway, but it's not me at all. And it's not you at all. It's the Lord. 
He gets all, if there's any glory to be had, he gets the glory. You see, and Paul says this, because look at the very next verse, verse 14. But God forbid that I should glory. So those who are satisfied in self, they fail. But those who are satisfied in Christ succeed. But God forbid that I should glory, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision avails anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature a new creation. And as many walk, according to this rule, peace be on them and mercy and upon the Israel of God. So don't trouble me any longer because I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. That's an incredible statement, by the way. We'll get to why it is in just a moment. And so he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be upon your spirit. The only thing in which I can boast in is Christ. His cross is our glory. Through the cross, I'm crucified to the world. The boasting is not an uncircumcision either. You know, he, he, I, I like the fact that he says that. It's not circumcision or uncircumcision. So the Gentile believer couldn't boast that he was uncircumcised. He says it's not, it's not circumcision at all. So whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised, both of those avail to nothing. That's, that's body, that's flesh. The real glory is in Christ. There's no self-glory. So those who boast in the cross they now become at peace in the church. The Jews who recognize this, so all those Judaizers out of Jerusalem who, who were coming and infiltrating the Antioch church, all those, he says, you are the Israel of God, the true believers who have been Jews and realized it wasn't through Judaism that they found Jesus, it was through the gospel of Jesus that they found Jesus. Those people, he says, you are the true Israel of God. All the other Jews who are, who are Judaizers, who are trying to live by the law, and they're trying to make God happy with the way they are, they're not the true Israel. They're not the Israel of God. It's not a verse that report, so supports replacement theology. I actually read a book a few months ago written by a guy who basically concluded that because it says, you are the Israel of God, and Galatians is written to Gentiles, uh, that therefore uh, every believer is really a Jew first. I mean, that's just the fact. That's how he started the book. And I went, well, it's, this is going to be a hard book to get through because I just think you're wrong right off the bat. This is not replacement theology that the church has replaced Israel, that we are the new Israel. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is for all of you who are in, Jude in Judaism and you also have accepted Jesus as your Savior, those who are truly believers, you are the Israel of God. It's a reference to Jews who recognize that circumcision is no longer necessary, that it avails nothing, that the only thing important is the new creature. And the new creature isn't a Jewish Christian. The new creature is just a Christian. And if there are scars to be had, and this is the part I love, because remember, circumcision is going to create a scar. He says if there are scars to be had, there's only one scar that really is great to have. And that's the scar where you can say, I got that. I got this. I got that. I look at my back, look at the scars because of the gospel of Jesus. Those are the scars. He says, if I'm going to glory and boast in anything, it's because of what God did through me for him. And I'm going to glory in his cross. The scars of law keeping are worthless. The scars of the gospel are powerful. These are the marks of the Lord Jesus and imagine them as the crown of glory. If our, if our new bodies maintain the scars of, of this life. I have no idea if they do or don't. 
I, I kind of lean no, but maybe they do. Jesus' new body had scars, right? If they maintain the scars of this life, the Apostle Paul is going to walk around with a really great body. Because he's going to walk around and say, yeah, I have no teeth because they all got knocked out when they threw rocks at my head. Oh, yeah, and, and I lost part of my ear when the guy was beating me with a rod and just struck me weird. And I have this kind of strange problem on my lower back. You know, he'll just be able to go and recount them. This past week, I stared uh, at the Mediterranean Sea. And I was looking at the sea off the bow of the ship. And here was what I was thinking. Paul spent two days just floating along in this. I mean, you all around the ship, you look as far as the eye can see, there's nothing. Nothing. And the first thing I thought was, well, it must have been summertime because the water is so cold. You get hypothermia and die. So they could. So now I'm trying to debate. Well, what? You know, when did this happen? It had to be. You start thinking that through. He bobbed up and down in what was a saltwater ocean for two and a half days, nothing to eat, nothing to drink, and no expectation of being rescued. Just simply because he loved the Lord. Those are the scars he bears. Those are really great scars. And all I can say is, if you are a spirit-filled, spirit-led Christian, spirit-guided, spirit-controlled, you may get scars for the gospel, but they are glorious scars. And you can come to the end of life and say, but God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of my Lord Jesus, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I am crucified to the world. Let's pray. Lord, help us tonight to... actually be spirit-led believers.